welcome to Show Me The Money, the podcast that looks at the business side of movies and TV with me, Jess Robinson, and the wonderful Stephen Follows. Hello. Good morning, Jess. Good morning. Or evening, see, depending on where you're listening. Are there the only two options? We, th- we think this is an early morning and late night podcast. Uh, yeah. yeah, we are recording early in the morning because Jess has a secret project you won't tell me about. And I want to know if you're filming the next series of Succession. Oh my God, I wish I was. Oh, although, <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love that um, series so much. I can't tell you. <laughs> so you wouldn't you be know- very good in it because you wouldn't be able to keep the poker face. You'd be like grinning at the camera. No, I'd being just like, be Look. fangirling over everyone. Look where I am. Oh my God. He just said fuck off. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm actually, right, my, would you my, like to know what I'm uh, doing? Yes, I would actually. Yeah, go for it. Shall I tell you? I am rehearsing my brand new Edinburgh show that I'm taking to the Edinburgh Festival, which is um, very exciting. And it's called Legacy. And it's funny. And it's got songs. And I've written the script now. And yeah, we're putting it on its feet this week. And it's That's on sale so now. And I can guarantee it's going to be excellent. So get your tickets. Wait, hold on. It's not finished. But yeah. people can buy it and you're guaranteeing it's going to be excellent, but it's not finished. Don't they, they don't do understand. that in movies? <laughs> That's exactly what they do in movies. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. How was the rest of Cannes? Well, um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was very long and it was nice to come home and, um, yeah, just sort of recharge and, and have good tea, which is not something that we normally have. Um, but... I think I think one of the things though is that one of the towards the end I was talking to a few people and I discovered something which I think might be our first topic, which I kind mm-hmm. of found out more and more about and it became yes. sadder and sadder. Yes. So you discovered at the Cannes Film Festival interns at the American Pavilion actually had to pay to work there. I mean, I would pay to work on succession, but tell me, what <laughs> is this? Surely that's the most enormous scandal in the world and well done also for being a detective and finding that. That's amazing of you. Yeah, well, I mean, I, the, the sad thing is it seems like it was one of those open secrets that like everyone knew. So it's not like I, oh. I was doing any sort of stuff with moustaches and, and oh. trench coats and hiding things. I know, oh. it's a shame. It's a good image. We wouldn't have worked in Cannes because um, I'd have to classes. wear a tux as well. Oh, <laughs> But um, but yeah, so it's it has blown up a little bit in the last week or so since we did the last recording. Um, right. So background here is that um, all across during the Cannes Film Festival and the market, there's all sorts of little tents or quite big tents um, by the beach, and each one's from a different country, and they represent the film. You know, they try and get people to film in their country. They run panels. They have like a home from home for the actual filmmakers. And um, the British one is quite nice and gives you free tea. Um, and the American one costs to get in. You have to pay between $100 and $1,000 for the access during the festival if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that is basically there's sort of a cafe and a restaurant and stuff like that. And they have a whole scheme, which they've been running for uh, over 30 years. Oh, by the way, just for American listeners, I have learned in the process, this is one of the less depressing things I learned over the last week, that the word scheme means different things in different countries. Because... I was meaning it like government-run program, you know, the government scheme. Whereas I think a lot of Americans heard it as sort of evil scheme. So if uh-huh, I do accidentally uh-huh. fall into using that word, I don't mean it like racket or like like it's some kind of mob thing. I just mean program, but I'll try and catch myself. I've been doing that mm-hmm. all week. Um, 
Yes. So they have a program uh, where they bring over American interns. And these are all college uh, kids in America who they don't have to be studying media, but a lot of them are. Mm. And it's most years it's been about, I think, about 100 or so students a year. I'm not sure. And they get um, they get accommodation and they also get put into different intern positions. So a lot of them will be in sales agents and distributors around the market and they'll be working for the course of the festival. They also get bits of training and things like that. So it's a scheme where they get sort of thrown right into the heart of the film industry and they get to see how it works. And, you know, it's all part of the, I mean, all countries do this, but the Americans seem to go a lot harder for this sort of unpaid internship thing. Um, and so that's been always been happening. And um, there are loads of good stories of it sort of working out for people and learning how the industry works. That's all fine. I learned while I was there, I heard some rumors and I started checking checking it out. And also because the, the interns who are doing it have to wear certain lanyards and stuff, it's quite easy to spot them outside of the tent. So you can go mm-hmm. up to them and be like, hey, can I ask you some questions when no one's listening? And um, it turns out they're all paying $4,000 to be there. What? Which is a huge amount of money. <laughs> yeah. $4,000 to be on the program each. Right. And also on top of their flights... Oh my god! Uh, which they have to pay themselves. Yes, and so and this year was a bumper crop. Um, I don't know all the reasons. I can only presume some of it was because there there hasn't two years ago there wasn't a can, and then this um, uh, this last year there was only a small one. So I think they, they did a lot of holdovers. But there was two hundred and twenty three of them. I understand. Oh my and goodness! So, yeah. Um, so for if you want to, let's start with the business because this is the business of film and TV. That's nearly a yeah. million dollars. That's sort of nine hundred and something thousand dollars turnover uh, from students wow. coming over, and wow. um, so there's. And then I started talking to them more about their experiences, and um, yeah, it's 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 not a, it's not a happy story. It's not the world's worst story. Don't worry, we're not going into the kind of the film industry has done far worse. Okay, this sure. is no defense, but like unfortunately, I mean, this is this is a story where the film industry does not come out that well. But we have done worse, so um, you do not have to turn off your. Um, your podcast app just yet. Um, uh-huh. So they, I spoke, to, I ended up speaking to a lot of them, and I and I tweeted about some of it, and then loads more got in contact. And so last week, I spent the time interviewing. I've now interviewed about forty of them, wow. as well as some of their professors and parents. And yeah, there's a there's a lot. Um, so these students are between like seventeen and some of them are in the late twenties. So it's a whole gamut of people, and they're and they're paying to be in the market. They're paying to be a part of this program, which involves placing them in the market. But some of them, some of their duties uh, yeah. uh, involve working behind the bar or in the restaurant at the American Pavilion. Uh-huh. So the majority of these people are having a good experience and they're learning in the industry. But some of them had a very negative experience and were basically doing service level, unpaid service level work and had paid four rand to be there. Wow. And <laughs> yeah, there's some more detail. Um, so uh, I've got some quotes from some of them. So one of them said, um, cost of the program for an early decision was uh, sorry, $3,950. My flight was roughly $1,200. Um, AMPAV, which is the short name for the American Pavilion, recommended to us that we bring $1,500 of spending money. I spent nearly $400 on professional clothing, which would be appropriate in the heat of summer, and $600 on a tux. Writing out all these numbers makes me sick for what the program actually is. And the worst thing is most of myself, uh, most of the people like myself don't have the money to hand. We put it on credit cards. Oh. I know. And I spoke to some people who'd taken out loans. I mean, some people had the cash. And so it's, this isn't everyone's experience. But, it, you know, it's a lot of money, even if you're well off. And these are college students that might be paying 30, 40K a year and what, anyway. And what exactly do they hope to get out of what were they hoping to get out of the experience 
Mm. Well, it's a good question. So most, Sorry, I, I own, stupid, most of the ones I yeah. spoke. No, no, it's a very good question. Most of the ones I spoke to had a negative experience, but I only spoke to about 30% of the students, oh, sorry, 15% of the students. And so what that means is there's many that were busy having a good time. And by having a good time, I mean that they're working in the market, they're seeing how the film work, uh, the industry right. works. If you're in a small company, you get to see everything. There is training as well. There's a support network. So actually the best of it is fantastic. Like there's mm. no no knocking that. And I don't know how many had good or bad, but there were enough that had bad experiences that I felt I had to do something about it. Yeah. So the accommodation they get, some mm. of them were saying that it was basically uh, between three students, there was one bed and two couches. Wow. Um, which isn't great. Um, and then also there was, I mean, COVID isn't isn't Ampav's fault at all, but no. COVID, I think, was rife around the festival. Um, unfortunately, I was after I left, a friend of mine I was talking to on the phone, he said, oh, when you walk around Cannes, just on the streets, you just see everyone coughing. And I hadn't oh seen that myself, but like, it seems very likely. Lots of people mm-hmm, come from over mm-hmm. the world. Everyone was acting like it was post-pandemic everywhere. Um, yeah. And so it seems entirely likely that it was there. But I think a lot of the students said they didn't have enough tests. Uh, there were lots of tests, but they weren't enough. And then there's this weird sort of confluence of things where if you go and buy, some of them were buying their own tests from pharmacies because they really wanted to know, which they shouldn't have to do to start with. Mm. But then once you do that, you have to register it and then you can't leave the country until you've given the result and things. And so there were situations where students I spoke to, they kind of knew they had COVID, wanted to be responsible, but if they did it, they'd have to register their test and then they have to quarantine for is it five or 10 days, I think, right. in France, which would mean they'd have to fly out later than they thought, which would mean the festival was over. And so they didn't, so they didn't feel really supported in some of those areas, some of the mm. ones I spoke to. Um, and then, and then there's just a general thing where that this is we'll, we'll go dark and then we'll move up. But the, the one of the darker things is that the film industry is just it's there are many people out there who are in it for the wrong reasons and and for a long time it's been despite everyone saying they're kind of liberal and nice and happy and or human rights and stuff. There's a lot of people out there who get away with stuff like Harvey Weinstein. There's no yeah. surprise he ended up in film, and so it's not that bad anymore. Although there's a huge level of like you know almost all the people that were in the industry during that period are still there. And so lots of the interns talked about inappropriate behavior, um, oh. which comes down to, yeah, sexist, racist, homophobic remarks. Yeah. Um, uh, the only thing that I, uh, this is me really like, you know, looking for the uh, positive in a terrible situation. And I'm being slightly glib, but only to try and cheer it up was that when I was asking people about inappropriate behavior and people trying to get their phone numbers and invite them to parties, it seemed to be all genders. Um, oh. So the equal equal opportunities <laughs> harassment uh, is th- is the best we can offer in the film industry at the moment. Um, but they the students themselves part of the program all they got was breakfast. And so when they were asked about how do we get lunch and dinner, they it was told you know pay by yourself or get invited to parties. And so wow. the worst of this is this subset of seventeen year olds in the film industry hungry being told to go to boat parties to eat food. And um, when I was talking to some of the interns about there were there were questions about the legality of working for free in France. I had to, I, there is, I mean, some of the lawyers I spoke to couldn't quite work out how it made sense legally. I've spoken to Ampav since, and they said it's one hundred percent legal, and I'm happy to take their word for it. I'm I'm not a lawyer; I don't have all the details. But the part of the conversation around that was, well, is serving helping your studies? You know, is it helping your understanding of the industry? Because a lot of interning is bad work, right? It doesn't yep. feel good to do, but yep. you're learning. And so I asked some of them about what the work was and whether it would help their career. And mm. one of them said, the reality is it's just older men talking about themselves and then giving me their Instagram. 
Ugh. Which I, I know, I know that was the main thing. And so, I know. And so, anyway, so I, I tweeted about this, and a lot of them said they felt misled. And, and your question was, what did they think they were going to get out of it? Well, a lot of yeah. them thought they were going to get training and access to the industry, and mm. they did. But some did not. And I think there, for some reason, which I, I don't know, and it's not really my business to work out, is there was a big disconnect between what some of them were expecting and what they received. And yeah. a lot of them were feeling kind of bit down and stuff. So, yeah. but but here's the kicker, right? So Ampav has been running for about 33 years, something like that. But in February, it was bought by a company uh, called Penske Media. And it's still run by the same people, I think, on the ground, but it's now owned by this big media company. And uh, in the film industry, we have four major like uh, trade publications. Um, there are there are smaller ones than elsewhere, but the main four American ones are Variety, Hollywood Reporter, Deadline, and IndieWire. Mm-hmm. And the media company that owns the uh, so that owns the American Pavilion owns Hollywood Reporter, Variety, Deadline, <gasps> and IndieWire. It owns all four of the companies. Oh it also owns God. Rolling Stone, Hollywood Foreign Press Association. There's a lot it owns. And so I don't think anything explicit happened. I just think that there's, you know, it's one of these things where you, when you find a scandal like this and you sort of think, well, well, I think it's a scandal. I think that a lot of these students, uh, for whatever reason, ended up having an experience that was significantly worse than they yeah. thought they were going to get. And I also think I personally, just as a person, have moral objections with people being charged that much to work for free. Yeah. But when you put that out there, you know, people do share it on Twitter and things, but it doesn't really get picked up in any of the trade press because of that sort of informal sense of all four of those companies were media partners with the pavilion. And so I don't, I'm not accusing any sort of big organized scandal. It's just, you know, since I put it out there, I've been reached out to by so many parents and professors and I think there's a lot of conversations going on and I I don't know what will happen next year I presume it will run again but there'll be a lot more scrutiny um yeah it sounds like they had a bad year in some cases they had some successes as well and there's also a phys- there is just a morality play which may be a more like cultural thing I'm, as a Brit I'm really uncomfortable with that much money being spent whereas a lot a lot of the Americans I spoke to were like well I'm just investing in my own education and career and I can understand that it's not wow. where I'd go with it but yeah what do you reckon I think that's a very high price to pay for a possible bit of schmoozing and a lot of waiting tables or whatever. That is not. That doesn't seem like a fair deal to me. Absolutely not. Have you I worked just... for free when you were starting out as a performer and stuff? Yes, I ha- I did do a few unpaid things, but it was unpa- I would do unpaid things in the industry. So, but but as as in, I would do unpaid acting roles or profit share where I was playing a decent part. We were always always told, and you've probably heard this before, you've got to have two out of three to make a job worth it. Uh, the money, the director, or the role. So even if it was really rubbish money, if it was a great role and a great director, you'd do it because it would be great on your CV and then do mm. your day job during the day. Um, but I've, n- I've never, ever, ever had to do something like that where I guess I, I have to pay to be there and, and I'm trying to liken it to Edinburgh but but there there isn't such a thing like people that go up and work as a flyer in Edinburgh if they're a student they will get their accommodation sorted they will get um not an amazing fee for flying but they'll get paid for flyering and then they'll get a pass to all of the four major venues so they can go and see the shows for free so well, it seems well, is, very I mean, some unfair of that- 
It is. I mean, some of that they get. They get this accommodation, which was less than some of them thought, but they still they they have accommodation, and they also but they they're, all they're not get being a bed, paid anything. Though. Yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, yeah, and I, I think also some of them, some of the older students, when I was chatting to them, they said, "Well, this is the only way I can get a pass to go around the festival or the market." And I said, "Well, actually." When I talked to some of them about what they had done so far, because a lot of them had been making films and things, I was like, well, actually, you qualify already for the free pass. And oh. the look on their faces was just oh. heartbreaking because they, I think a lot of them, for whatever reason, believed this was the only way that, the only way in. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the film companies that they were placed with were also saying, look, we, we don't, we don't, we're not happy with this. We also think that there should be based on merit rather mm. than who can pay. Um I mean, the Americans have an extra problem that a lot of countries don't have when it comes to that they don't have a public funding for this, whereas the Brits, it's being paid for through lottery and BFI mm. and, and British Screen, you know, there's a lot, a lot of organisations that chip in and the Americans don't necessarily have that. But I, I'm personally not comfortable with the main, I mean, they have sponsors and they sell food, but from a major source of income seems to be these, you know, broke college students. And I'm just not comfortable with that personally. No. But um, I got to say, though, it hasn't been a very happy week for me because I had to sort of, first of all, I thought I might be sued by a millionaire, which is never fun. <laughs> um, uh, but then also, I the, there were people that reached out to me. There were, there were people who didn't share it, um, you know, the, the media organizations and various people in the industry, which kind of was depressing but predictable. And then also there was this next flurry of people. And I had spoke to some very senior people in the industry who reached out to me, who some I knew, some I didn't, mm. uh, all off the record, who were like, yeah, this has been going on for a while. This is terrible. I'm so glad you said something. And that's lovely. And I, and I, that's great that they said that. But at the same time, they knew for a long time. Yeah, why and didn't they do as, anything? As far as I can see, it's been four grand for the last decade or so. It's hard to tell exactly. But, and I, I kind of... So yeah, I got really kind of upset with the industry. I was like, everyone talks a big game about equality and rights and stuff, but if it if it involves action, or most crucially, if it um, if it impacts their own journey, they may not do it. And I kind of, but I kind of saw also that I have a I have a privilege in the sense that I'm safe and I'm not going through this, and mm. I don't need to. I also can't really be fired because I'm not really employed. So mm. um, my mum says I'm un- unemployable. I go for retirement, <laughs> but whatever. Um, but I, 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 get, I get that the I can't be cancelled for this, and I can't be fired, and I'm, I'm not relying on the main four trade publications for my career, and, and the many people are. But, I mean, even so, I, I just I didn't do this because I wanted to. I felt like I had to, and I'm kind of disappointed that other people don't feel the same way so it's been kind of like I'm not I'm not I'm not very happy with the film industry this week so hopefully we'll find cheerier things in future pods but right now I'm not very proud of my industry oh well I I think that I'm I'm they should be proud to have you in it that's what I think well Um, some of them are not very happy with me no well (laughs) yeah Yeah. I I think um you're amazing and Keep going. Keep, keep fighting the good fight because it's it's um, it's very brilliant for people that don't have a voice to have somebody like you to fight their corner. I think. I tell you one one happy story just to finish this one on a happy note. Yeah, so I was talking on. to a friend of mine, Jen, who's a producer, and she's a really impressive producer. Has made lots of films. She's one of those people that on I think one of her first shorts, she won the student Oscar for it. Mm-hmm. Like just talented and nice it's really annoying um and I was talking to her and I she went through the program and I said what were some of the good things about the program for you and she said well I met my husband and uh, so 
Yeah, I don't think that's explicitly one of the aims of this, but um, <laughs> he he's a delight and they're lovely together. So there is at least, there's a lot going on in this program. And, you know, having a, an experience during your college years where you are at the heart of the Cannes Film Festival and just seeing it all must be really like, exciting and overwhelming for many people in a really good way. So yeah. let's focus on that part of the journey and think about those students. Because, Absolutely. You know. So um, uh, also at Cannes, Guillermo de Toro said, the current state of cinema is not sustainable. Why is this, please? Yeah, so he was on a panel uh, of directors at Cannes and they, they like to have panels where they talk about the industry. And it's really interesting because you get so many different people together and mm-hmm. you have this mix of art and commerce. And, and he's a really interesting director. He did The Shape of Water. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, uh, Woman Meets Fish um, wins Oscar. Like, I think that was the main plot. Um, <laughs> and he did uh, Hellboy and Blade. He does a lot of fantasy stuff. And he's a really interesting like director. does a lot of strange uh, artistic stuff. And um, he, But he also works in, in, a, in a commercial sense as well. He, he's, you know, as I said, he's made films for most of the studios and made like Pacific Rim, which is a really big commercial film. Um, and he was talking about uh, how the different, the, the way that the streaming world, the, the pipeline that we have at the moment for content is changing cinema and whether it's good or bad. And it's a really fascinating topic because it's it's about how the physical industrial parts of the industry then affect the out, the artistic output, which then affects our culture. Mm-hmm. And I find it fascinating, like what we were talking about last week, where the trade deal with China meant more 3D movies. And so then that affects the movies that we see. Um, and so he was saying how, I mean, he noted a few things that I thought was really interesting. He said that everyone's working. He said everyone he knows is doing a TV show or a, a film or something, and people are working more than ever before. And and that's true. Uh, there's so much being made in the world. Uh, and because a lot of it is TV, where there's multiple episodes rather than just one film, lots of directors are being hired and 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 also crew and you know, skill shortage, all that sort of stuff we've talked about before. So that's kind of cool that more people are making art. Um, but he did, he had a great line, which I liked. It was, he, he didn't like the phrases content and pipeline. You know, he prefers films and things. But he, when he was talking about pipelines, he said, um, they de- uh, pipelines describe oil, water and sewage. They do not describe cinema. Uh-huh. Um, I thought that was quite good. Uh, I love pipeline that. Is, uh, yeah, what a hero. Um, they describe something that you flush through that has to keep moving. Um, so yeah, so he, he's very derisive about, but also I got to say his next movie that comes out later this year is for Netflix. Okay. So he's lived, but this is the problem. You live in a complicated world where yeah. Netflix isn't inherently good or bad. There, there may be bad things about the way he also complained about algorithms and algorithmic content and things like that. But at the same time, they're still funding him to make the film he wants. And he was very complimentary about the fact that they kind of left him alone. So his question was really about how the medium is going to change. And actually, he raises a really good point, because if you think about the last sort of 100 or so years of film, mm. uh, initially it was short films, and then around the sort of 19-teens, do you call them 19-teens? 100 years sure. ago. Sure, 19-teens. 19-teens, um, <laughs> obviously. I'm glad that's the official phrase. Uh, feature films started to take over what we now think of as feature length compared to like just short bits of content. Yeah. And then in the 1930s, uh, talkies took over from... Uh, silenties, non-talkies, yeah, yeah. Um, silent films. I'm glad you know um, all of the technology. I mean, wow. These are all the technical terms. And I, and I think that it's hard to tell, but I'm I'm really on top you of this. You are the expert, um, yeah. 
Uh, and then I, I don't know whether going from black and white to color in the 60s makes a big difference, but but certainly the you, know, you can imagine the length makes a difference, the fact that they're talking. And then we had movies on TV, and then you could buy a VHS or rent one and take it home. Mm-hmm. And then multiplexes came in, and then digital filmmaking is all different sort of in, in making films, finishing films, and showing films, and then finally streaming. Each of these different sort of revolutions changes our relationship with films. I was about to use the word content, but then I could feel Guillermo looking over my shoulder, judging me, shaking his head. Um, (laughs) So all of these different pipeline solutions, um, uh, which we used to call cinema, must be changing what we do. And I I certainly feel, I don't know how you feel, but I feel like there's so much things, so many films I haven't watched, so many bits of content that they must feel more disposable to me. Yes. Is that how it feels to you? Yes. I think there's there's just, uh, it's, I... I thought at one point I had completed Netflix, but now it's not it's not possible. Um, yes, there's so much out there. And just when I want a new film suggestion of what possibly could I watch tonight when I put it on Twitter or something, I get so many responses of things I've never even heard of. So, yeah, it's it's it feels like it's infinite. And that must change your relationship with it. And and I, I again, it's difficult to know because you only go through your own life experience. So I remember going to the cinema as a kid and what that meant to me. But that's as much to do with me and my life as it is to do with the fact there were fewer movies or I had to go to the cinema to see them. Yeah. Um, but it might, yeah. I do, and, yeah. And I, remember, got... I remember thinking, oh, I can't go. I've seen everything. There's nothing on. I don't want to see that one again. Or, you know, that that that's a funny thing to think I've seen it. There's I can't watch yeah. anything. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, a bit of story time for you. So, when I was in secondary school, we were—I've never, t- never said this publicly before, so I might still get in trouble. I don't mm-hmm. know. We'll see. I don't even know if my mum knows this or not. Um, <laughs> when I was at primary, uh, secondary school, we were allowed to on Wednesday afternoons do sport, and we could do any sport we wanted. And so, me being an awkward kid, I was like, "Well, can we do ten pin bowling?" And they were like, "All right, just just organise it. Just do what you want," uh, which was generally the response to my requests. And um, for the first week, we went 10-pin bowling. The second week, we realized that there was a cinema next door. And for the next two years, we went to the cinema every Wednesday afternoon mm-hmm. um, because we just could. And we, we'd go and see whatever movie was out. And I remember one uh, week, we saw My Best Friend's Wedding. Mm-hmm. And we'd seen it the week before. And I didn't want to see it the week before. And we saw it again because there weren't any other new films out. We couldn't mm-hmm. see anything new. And uh, as a code to that, one of my friends more recently said to me, well why didn't you just go bowling? And I was like, oh, that didn't occur to us. <laughs> Actually, I quite like bowling. <laughs> didn't occur. But we went to see a film that we were sitting there going, oh, I've seen this before. Because there was a whole load of us. There was about 10 yeah. of us. Yeah. Um, and I discovered actually years later when I went back to the school, uh, when I was at university to do a careers talk kind of thing, uh, it was still going on as a racket. Brilliant. So maybe I'm spoiling it now for people. But but the point was, I remember exactly that experience of there not being very many movies in the cinema and, ha- mm-hmm. and having, quote unquote, to see the same movie. Whereas now there is so much that I can't even assess all the choices that I can watch before I've run out of time for the evening. And that was my my Netflix viewing is just Netflix scrolling, doom scrolling. Doom so, scrolling. Oh, it's the worst. So I don't know what will happen when it comes to content because it means that, and also the other thing that's happening is that obviously uh, TV shows, there's so many more TV shows, there's, n- there's no longer the length requirements you have with TV where it had to fit into an hour long slot. Mm. So his point was, Del Toro's point was that it's changing how we tell stories. And so if you can tell story of any number of episodes of any length and someone will fund you to do it, that's a great opportunity but we shouldn't lose cinema that he grew up on, this idea of, what is that, like a two-hour experience yeah, and you sort yeah. of venerate it and give it time. And so he was raising quite a good nuanced point. I, 
I don't know where it's going. I don't know whether we'll end up having totally different forms of stories. And I think the only people in charge of that really are all the streamers. And they're responding to what you and I do. Not yeah. just you and I. I th- there's probably a few other no, people that are looking at Okay, well, with a lot of pressure. I do hope that Netflix aren't picking what to make based on what I watch, because it would not be good. Um, but um, but yeah, so that, so if the audience want to watch different forms of content, they'll start that that will start to become what we make, and then there might be this sort of um, fringe wing, the way we have like vinyl records rather mm-hmm. than you know this this sort of I want to watch a feature film, and it's seen as a sort of quaint, unusual thing done by older generations, like you and I in the oldest bracket. Um, so. Uh, I, I don't know, but it was a really good nuanced point that he made and it'd be interesting to see how things change. Yeah. So we'll, we shall see. Very interesting. Ooh. Now we're running out of time, but I, um, and I want to get in the listener question as well because we've got a great one. But um, quickly, Amazon's spending on TV and film in the UK has passed the one billion mark. What? Actually, I'm not That's surprised. Correct. <laughs> do you think it's just on yeah yeah uh yeah that's correct so it's a billion since 2018 and it includes film tv and sport so i could probably that's spend that true just on sport well i think if no, you go to wimbledon and get some strawberries yeah <laughs> um but yeah you're, you're right so they but they've been making content but they've also been uh they've got a 10-year contract at shepparton yeah they've put uh, 10 million pounds into training and skills that's a really big thing um, and, it, and in um, Denmark actually this week it was announced that there's going to be a production levy I think it's six percent um, which basically oh. means the money they spend in Denmark making content has to go towards training and things so that's great mm-hmm. um, they've also invested uh, they say 600 uh, sorry 65 million in Scotland but that's making tv shows but that's hiring people and they said 60 percent of their staff were Scottish um in that on those shows and that, in that money and they also have been spent some of the money or all of the money that they got from the US Open the tennis on a new fund to help british women's tennis oh. um so they 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 basically made it, what they had was a big event where they had all of their celebrities down which was funny because you had lots of different types of people next to each other <laughs> um and like some big photo like a vanity fair photo and they were uh, just saying look we're really committed to the UK obviously it's a puff PR thing but it's also true all the things they're doing and they are investing a huge amount so fair enough Um, and they were like yeah we're really committed to the UK and this will make a big difference and stuff and so we're in this period where as we talked about last week the streamers are going to have to start cutting back generally I think on content we've Mm -hmm. hit peak content and now the realities are kicking in but they've already committed a lot of this stuff and if you've already started filming or planning a show it doesn't really make sense to cancel it so all of the money that they're committed will still be spent over the next year or so so we might still see ramping up of the the spend in the uk and then maybe in a year or two the the decisions they're making today will start to kick in and so this we might be approaching peak employment Um, this is my guess now this is you know in film and tv so all of these training schemes are really urgently needed but if they're four-year training schemes there'll be a concern what happens in four years when the industry has contracted slightly or maybe it'll continue that's i i'm not i'm not saying that'll definitely happen but definitely it looks like the streamers are going to have the reality starting to kick in and they're going to have to cut back at some point so any of these long-term things that amazon's doing like shepherd and like the training schemes and stuff that's awesome so yeah. uh, I don't usually say this, but big thumbs up to Amazon. And that's great for the UK creative industries, I think. Well, it'd be exciting to watch what happens there, won't it? You're like the Nostradamus of <laughs> could you film not pre- and TV. Could you not find a nicer <laughs> recommendation? 
<laughs> no, oh, because I don't that. have I don't have enough knowledge to liken you to anybody else. If you have nothing nice to say, <laughs> say nothing. <laughs> No, oh, the, like, fine. I'll the take positive, it. the positive Nostradamus. You're Mystic <laughs> Meg. You're Mystic Meg. There we go. Thank you. We. Oh, I knew Thank we could get you. there. Finally. <laughs> um, question from Tom Perry this this week. Our lovely listener, Tom Perry of our many Jingle, listeners. Please. Oh, um, I can't remember how it goes. So this is a different one. <laughs> Tom Perry has written a question to us. Thank you, Tom Perry. We'd like to hear what you have to say. What accent would you like it to be? I think it's going to be Scottish. Okay, so hello, Tom Perry. Um, <laughs> Love it. Welcome Love it. to my no breakdown, notes. everybody. Um, <laughs> right. Hi, guys. I love the pod. I've always wondered how film directors organise shooting a film, as in how much of the location scouting, set design, uh, yeah, set design uh, and approval. No, wait, I've got to say it again because I've I turned into <laughs> Lorraine halfway through. Oh, I love your Can party. I just say how brave you are doing an Edin- planning an Edinburgh show, yeah. going up to Edinburgh for a month and then leading up to that doing a Scottish accent. So... You get points for bravery there. Oh, thanks. Hi, guys. Okay, here's the question from Tom Perry. Hi, guys. I love the pod. I have always wondered how film directors organise shooting a film, as in how much of the location scouting, set design approval, etc., do they tend to get involved in? Um, Tom's got a funny turn of phrase, but I like him. What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) I like Tom too. Um, Thanks, Tom. Good question. So this was carrying on our journey of uh, Voices in My Head. Is that right? Your your, your book that we have adapted. Um, I mean, I I think he didn't really care about it, but yes, I think it is. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Um, Yeah, so so you hire a director and then the bit between, the the bit before you're filming is known as Mm pre-production because actually filming in the industry is called production. So when someone says we're going into production, they mean we're actually going to film. So the pre-production period is where you basically plan everything logistically. You know, where are we going to shoot? Uh, okay, what time are we going to get there? Where are the toilets, catering? You know, it's hugely logistical. Yeah. But obviously all of that comes from creative choices because where are we going to film will speak to the director's vision and the cinematographer and the set designer and all the people, all of the myriad of people that are working on it. So mm. it's a mix of creative We're going to film in logistical. Denmark. Because of the tax credit. Oh, no, because of the production levy. Okay, yeah. fine. All right, we're going to Denmark. Okay, sure. now, as the writer, yeah. that's, an, that's an interesting note that the director will will probably say the wonderful line, thank you for telling me, which is, uh, <laughs> which is the diplomatic way of saying <laughs> ruder <off>. things. <laughs> yes, thank you for telling me. Um, but let's say there is an external director. Um, they will be working with, and this is a really uh, key part of how why film is so interesting when it comes to the creative process, because on the one hand, they need to have this vision that they've created in their head, that they've adapted from the screenplay and you know, take into account ideas and things they've got. And then also there's a budget, there's a schedule, You know, maybe Denmark's closed and you have to go and do it in Liechtenstein, <laughs> and then you have to make that work. You know, um, And so all directors are dealing with that to some degree. 
And so they will very much be working, even the most, say, visionary director who perhaps isn't the best at logistics, mm. someone like, say, T Terry Gilliam, who's got such a fantastic vision in his head that he almost is frustrated with the world not being possible to give him what he needs. And <laughs> it should give him what he needs because he's a genius. But um, he will be the kind of director who might be like, OK, this is the vision, and then might hand it to the di director and uh, the producer and say, we need to shoot this. And then they'll work with their production manager and the, the line producer and the line producer and people like that mm -hmm. who, who then think about the logistics, each of them, people underneath them. And so it becomes more and more specific. You have a location scout might go and find the possible locations and a location manager who will, you know, coordinate everyone on the ground. And then that goes right down to toilets and looking after carpets if it's a stately home during the filming. But that that particular vision I gave you was just the director saying, I want this, essentially. And the mm -hmm. producer coming back and saying, yes or no, you know, she can or can't provide it. Mm -hmm. But a lot of directors, especially the more successful ones, seem to actually realize that they, the more they get involved in that logistical stuff, even though it may not be what they want, the more they can actually get what they want and control the end result. So someone like Wes Anderson doesn't get to say, I just want it to look like this. He really needs to think, or oh, where are we going to film? Um, and there are people like, I mean, Alfred Hitchcock, Hitchcock was kind of a, known as a control freak because he had these ideas, what he wanted. And so you could totally imagine him crossing over into basically producing as well because he's having to make these decisions um and there are lots of producers that get director credits and vice versa so i actually did a study of overlapping credits a few years ago and i found that just over half of all directors had also produced in at some point in their career all got to produce a credit we don't know what they actually produce but i would give them the benefit of the doubt assume they had but only eight percent of producers had directed so it's sort of a lot of producers, sorry, a lot of directors will be involved in production and get a production credit, but mm. not a lot of producers become directors. And I think that's because, uh, yeah, if, you're, if your heart is in the creative, you get pulled towards maybe direction, but then it makes sense to jump into the logistics. But if you're pulled towards the logistics, there isn't a lot of, you know, interest to jump into helming the project and becoming the main director. Right. Um, so, so, yeah, so the, so the real answer is it, it depends on every production. And mm -hmm. it depends on the producing relationship. Some producing relationships between directors and producers involve the director just saying what they want, the producer making it happen. Sometimes it is the main producer and director who will make decisions. And, and you can sometimes make producer decisions as a director and director decisions as a producer, which can be a bad thing. So if you were making a producer decision as a director, I'm working this through, you might suddenly <laughs> say, oh, we don't need loads of extras. We can do this in a small room. And then it looks bad as a scene. It looks dull and you've saved money, but you've harmed the film. Yeah. Or inversely, you might defend something that actually reasonably should be cut down or done differently. So on Titanic, James Cameron wanted the, the model, the, the huge starboard side of the ship that they built physically to be facing a certain direction because he he wanted it to, I think it's something to do the wind or the way it looked and the directing decision. But that was the inverse of what it actually was in the movie. So they had to do all of the signs backwards and then flip it in post-production. So all the writing was backwards on the set and, because, and then they'd reverse it so that it was correct for the history. I can't tell you on that particular case whether that's a good thing to do or not. It sounds like a, a stronger producer or a less powerful director, because at that point, one of the most powerful directors in the world, might have made a different set of choices there. Possibly. Wow. Very so. good. Thank you, Tom. That was an excellent yeah, you, question. 
And um, I wonder, I wonder who is going to ask a question next week, and what accent they'll have. Because <laughs> I'm running you out. Might, we may not even know. Once, <laughs> oh, you're running out. So Scottish was the main one that you could. Okay, good. No, well, no, no. well they'll, it's they'll good that you're going into rehearsals worry. for your show. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. They will be as impressions soon as well. Um, <laughs> oh dear. Uh, you are allowed to request as well, and I may or may not um, take you up on that. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much for listening to Show Me The Money. And thank you for your uh, wonderful questions. And also big shout out to our wonderful producer, Guy, who has to um, edit our stupidness uh, each week. <laughs> Thanks, Guy. We love you a lot. Um, if you would like to ask us a question, then email us at showmethemoneypod at gmail.com. And don't forget to please give us a follow in your podcast app and leave us a review and five-star rating, please. Not It says... <laughs> in the script here if you have time make time um, <laughs> have this a is not wonderful... how one gets five star reviews no, it's not, sure. is it? I'm sorry I'm going to bully you into it uh, in fact you could pay to make a review just like Han um... <laughs> now she's got it now we work out how the film industry really works have a wonderful week until we see you next time wonderful listeners and um, it's bye from me bye bye everyone good luck Jess on your rehearsals and it's bye from Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. It was, it was supposed to be like Morecambe and Wise and it didn't work. Bye. Uh, bye. Bye.